summer 2015, I was just a couple short months away from being married, the last couple months, and um, I was living on my own in Roanoke. I had moved out there uh, because my, well, my soon-to-be wife was living out there. Um, so I was living by myself in a house, and I wanted a companion, so I went out to the rescue shelter, and I got a dog. His name was Diesel, and if anyone has never lived up to their name, it is that dog. Um, but I remember I brought him home, and uh, Leslie, my fiance at the time, she came, she came over that evening because she wanted to meet the dog, and we're sitting there on the couch, Diesel's on the floor, and he jumps up on the couch. And I turned to her, and at that moment, I said, we have to make a decision. Are we going to allow this to happen or no? Because if we let it happen this time, it's, it's not going to stop. And so we realized at that moment, we had to make a decision, you know, is this, is this going to be expected of him or no? We saw that we had to figure out his expectations, right? Now that he was in the home, what were our expectations of him? A couple years later, in 2017, sort of had to have that same process, only this time with a little human, um, a lot more challenging with a human. Uh, and so we, even now, we have to have conversations. You know, is, is she allowed to do this? Who sets the rules? Oh, we set the rules. Is she allowed to do this? Uh, what should she, what shouldn't she do? And so in both situations, whether it's Diesel or our daughter Parker, they were already in the family. They were already in the home, but they had to learn and we had to learn what was expected of them as members in the family. If they're gonna live under our roof, what was gonna be expected of them? Well, thankfully, the Lord has already given us clear expectations of what it means to be a part of his family, what it means to be a follower of him. And so last week, we looked at the first part of chapter three, we saw that as believers, we're, called to, we're commanded not to do certain things. And Paul phrased this a couple different ways, but it was all based in this idea that we belong to Christ. Because we belong to Christ, don't do these things, do these other things. And he phrases that in a couple different ways. Verse 1, because you were raised with Christ. Verse 3, because you have died. Verse 4, because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's all based on this idea that we belong to Christ now. And because of that, there are expectations that we're supposed to meet. And so today... We continue part two of this mini-series within the series of Colossians. And we'll see that if we truly belong to Christ, we are commanded to imitate him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we'll see that as God shapes our character, as he shapes who we are, that should have a major impact on what we do, how we live, especially on how we interact with other believers. So at this time, the kids are going to go with Pastor Rob. The kids and their families are going to go with Pastor Rob. And they're going to go through the same message, same passage, same outline. And they're going to have uh, just a little bit of a tailoring to um, application that they, they can get behind. But they're going through the same thing that we are in here. And that's part of our, uh, our strategy to disciple families. And so um, they're going to go through the same thing. Pastor Rob is preaching back there today. Um, talked to him this morning. He, he really was excited about it. So he's not just putting on a face. So, um, but like I said, they're going through the same passage. So they're going to read through that back there. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter three. And uh, we're going to start in verse 12. We're start in verse 12. All right. It's therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. We're going to stop right there for a second. Therefore, as the elect of God, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved. Um, 
In this first verse, Paul gives the condition again, right? This, the idea behind this is if you truly belong to Christ, if you truly are a believer, but he phrases it in this way, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, as the chosen of God. You already are these things. This is what he's writing to the Colossians. You already are chosen. You already are holy. You already are set apart. You already are beloved. These are all things that you already are. That's the condition. That's the condition, not the outcome of what he's about to command. That's the condition for what he commands. But a lot of times we, we sort of switch these things around because Paul's about to give some commands in a moment, but we tend to switch these things around. Well, I do these things and I don't do these other things. Therefore, I am wholly chosen and loved by God. But Paul switches that around. He makes it clear that it's, it's the other way. I already am chosen, holy, and loved by God. Therefore, I will do these things and not do these other things. And my daughter has certain expectations of her because she's my daughter, not so that she can become my daughter. If she's living in my home, she has expectations. And I don't want to spend too much time on this idea, but Paul sort of uses the same phrasing that the Lord himself uses in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Holy Spirit speaking through Paul here uses the same phrasing. When, when the Lord speaks to the people of Israel after he's led them out of Egypt, about to go into the promised land, he tells them, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. This is the idea behind what Paul is about to say, the commands that he's about to give. And we need to frame it like this. We have to frame it in the right way. God does not love you because you obey these rules. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not why God chose you. That's not why God set you apart. Your salvation isn't rooted in who you are or what you do. It's rooted in who God is and what God has done. Your salvation is the starting point, not the finish line of what Paul is about to command. He's not saying do these things to be saved. He's saying you're saved, so do these things. So we have to frame it in the right way. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, we read on in verse 12, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we read this passage, we see a couple things that we are expected to do, a few things we're expected to do in light of our salvation. So he writes the Colossians, the first thing we see is that if, if we truly belong to Christ, if we are believers, then we are called to put on the character of Christ. He says, put on these things, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, put on these things. And if you look at the passages from last week and this week, you'll notice that there are some interesting paradoxes. In verse 3, he says, you have died, and yet in verse 5, he commands us to put these things to death. 
Verse eight, he commands the reader to put off these things. And yet verse nine, he says, you've already put off the old man. Verse 10, he says, you've put on the new man, you have put it on, who is right now being renewed. And here in verse 12, he commands us to put on these things. When in verse 10, he's already said that we have put on the new man. So, so what's, what's the point here? I, I think what we see here is that it's, it's an already right now and in the future process. Yes, the old man is dead. The old Stafford is crucified with Christ, yet I still have to fight his old tendencies every day. I still have to fight the flesh. I still have to put those sins to death every day, and I need to be diligent in that fight daily. Yes, I have put on the new man with new characteristics, but I still have to put that on every day. So bottom line, as Christians, we are commanded to every day live out what God has already declared us to be. We're called to live out our identity in Christ. So Paul commands the Colossians, he says, put on these things. Then he lists five attributes. Now this is the third list of five that he's given in chapter three. He says, put on tender mercies or compassionate hearts, depending on your translation. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience. And when he says to put on these things, you know, the tense of the verb shows us that it's a command. He's telling them to do this, but the, the tense shows us that there's urgency there. He's not saying, hey, put on these whenever you feel like it. No, no, put them on now. There's an urgency behind this command. Not at your leisure, put them on now. And the phrasing he uses there is used to talk about putting on and taking off clothes. That's the imagery he's using. And so two things about this. When we see that, that he's using imagery of putting on and taking off clothes, um, number one, put on indicates that it's something that's not naturally a part of us. Right? He's not telling the Colossians and us that you just need to look deep inside of yourself to find your patience and to find your kindness. And he's saying we need to put it on from somewhere else because this isn't natural for you. Just as we were supposed to put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, things that are naturally on us, so we're supposed to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, which we don't naturally have. But where does it come from, right? If we've put it on from somewhere else, where do we get it from? Well, the second thing that we see from this is this. Each of these characteristics is modeled in the life of Christ. You want to see the greatest possible compassion? Look at when the Lord Jesus saw the crowds of Israel as sheep without a shepherd. You want to see his kindness? Look at how he ministered to the poor, the outcast, the needy. How he crossed cultural barriers to care for the individual. You want to see his humility? Well, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on earth cross. You see his meekness? Look at how he exercised restraint. He restrained himself from arguing with Pilate. He restrained himself from calling down legions of angels to take him off the cross. See, meekness isn't weakness. It's restrained, voluntarily controlling your strength. The Lord showed us that. You want to see his patience? Look at the ignorance he endured from his own disciples, waiting for the perfect timing of God's plan. So when Paul says to put on these things, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on these things, he's saying, turn your eyes to Jesus. Imitate him. He's already said in verse 10 that the new man we've put on is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. This new man that we've put on is continually being renewed to look more and more like Jesus. And so here's what that means. 
When you have those days when you're sort of at the end of your rope and you say, I have no patience left. I have used my last ounce of compassion. I just don't care at all about anybody else. Anybody else have those days? Right? On those days when we've hit our bottom, he's not saying dig down deep and find your zen. No, don't look inward, look upward. Look to the Savior and say, God, I need you to clothe me in kindness today because I've got none on my own. Lord, I need you to help me show patience because I have none. And so as God shapes our character, he shapes our actions. That's what Paul goes on to say. And so having the character of Christ as we put on these things, that means we will bear with one another. In verse 13, he says, bearing with one another. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to a church, and he's telling them to bear with one another, which is really kind of silly because we know that nobody in the church ever does anything that we don't like. We agree with everybody else in the church all the time, so there's really no need to bear with them. It's dripping with sarcasm, if you couldn't tell. But, But we bear with one another. Maybe somebody hasn't wronged you, per se. Maybe they haven't offended you where they need to apologize, per se. But, you know, we all have those people where something about them just really irks you, right? Paul's saying bear with them, right? Bear with them. Not only that, but if they do wrong you, if they do do something to offend you, forgive them. There's a famous story about Corey ten Boom, who was a Dutch watchmaker, devout Christian, who hid Jews uh, during World War II. And she was caught by the Nazis. She was sent to a concentration camp. And while she was in the camp, some of the guards um, sort of humiliated her and the other ladies while they were in the shower. They would ogle her and they would dehumanize these ladies as they were in the shower. Cruelty um, of the physical type and cruelty of the emotional type. And so after the war was over, she was freed from the concentration camp. And she felt that she had, by God's grace, she felt that she had forgiven even those guards. And so she preached forgiveness all over Europe. She would travel and she would tell her story and she would share how God had sustained her and she would share how God had forgiven her, which allowed her to forgive other people. And so she preached forgiveness time after time in all of Europe. And one Sunday in Munich, after the message, a man came up to her, outstretched hand, and he said, Fraulein, It is wonderful that Jesus forgives us all our sins, just as you said. She remembered his face. He was one of the SS guards that had mocked her in the shower stall, wanting a handshake from her and agreeing that Jesus forgives. She couldn't forgive. She she says how she stood there frozen. She couldn't move her hand. She couldn't shake his hand. And so she offered up a silent prayer to the Lord. She said, Lord, forgive me. I cannot forgive. And after she prayed that, she recognized the weight of her own forgiveness, that the Lord had forgiven her. As she prayed, she felt forgiven despite her inability to forgive. So her hand was suddenly unfrozen. She shook the man's hand and she forgave as she was forgiven. We are commanded to forgive one another. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say this. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It's a hard teaching. But it finds its basis again in the fact that we already have been 
forgiven. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that any of the wrongs done to you were acceptable. Forgiveness doesn't diminish the evil done against you. Forgiveness doesn't take away any of the consequences the other person will face because of his or her sin, including maybe the loss of your trust. You know, trust is a gift that has to be earned back. Forgiveness isn't a destination all the time. It's a process. It may be that somebody has wronged you so badly, has hurt you so terribly in this life that you feel like you, you never really arrive at a place of forgiveness and you still struggle with thoughts of bitterness and resentment. And you feel like you've never gotten to that point where you can say, I have forgiven them. You're still working on, I am forgiving them. But that's the thing. You, know, you, you fight to forgive. That's what the Lord is telling us to do. But again, it doesn't come naturally. Paul's saying, put on these things. We put on the character of Christ with the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. And that leads us to enter into the often painful process of letting go of our desire to hurt the other person, of letting go of our desire to get revenge, let go of hatred, let go of spite. That's not possible in our own strength. It's only possible when we put on the character of Christ. So Paul says to put on these things, put on the character of Christ. But then he adds in verse 14, he says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So because we belong to Christ, we will put on the character of Christ, but we will also put on love. Now, it's hard to translate the beginning of this verse because the word here uh, is, is a little bit different, and different translations have different things. Some say above all these things, put on love. Some say upon all these things, on all these things, onto all these things. Um, but essentially, if all of these other traits that he's told us to put on are clothing, because that's the imagery that he's using, love is the coat that goes over top. Love is the coat that covers all these things. Again, we're putting this on. It comes from somewhere else. We're not digging deep down inside to find love for other people. We are grabbing hold of the love that Christ has shown us, and we are showing that same love to other people. And Paul here calls love the bond of perfection. It bonds together. Now, what is it bonding together? Well, it certainly binds us together as believers. But more specifically, in this passage, it bonds together the other characteristics we're supposed to show to one another. Right? Compassion without love isn't true, perfect compassion. Kindness without love isn't true, perfect kindness. Humility without love isn't true, perfect humility. Meekness without love isn't true, perfect meekness. Patience without love isn't true, perfect patience. Each of these attributes, each of these characteristics that he tells us to put on, they only reach their full power in the body of Christ when they are unified and when they are empowered by love. In 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that's often used at weddings, but in context is, is speaking specifically to the love in the body of believers. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is the banner under which all of these other attitudes operate. 
But as part of that love, Paul gives a little bit more detail about how that should play out in our interactions. He says, what does this love look like in, in action? What does it look like for us to love one another? So he goes on in the next verse, verse 15, he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. So because we belong to Christ, we'll put on the character of Christ, which will lead us to put on love over top of all these other things, which will then lead us to let peace rule. The word he uses for rule here, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament, but it literally means something like to umpire. It means something along the lines of rendering a verdict in contested situations. It's gonna be the deciding factor in a conflict. So what he's saying is that if you have a disagreement with somebody, especially in the church, if you, if you disagree with somebody, peace should be the deciding factor. In the church, if you have a disagreement with someone based on a preference rather than a biblical conviction, based on the way you think things should be done, what you think should be the case in a certain situation, what should be the greatest factor in the situation? Not seniority. I've been at this church for 60 years and that's the way we've always done it. Not modernity. You know, this is the new cutting edge way to do things. And not how well you can argue and articulate your point. The deciding factor in all of this should be peace. That should be given preference. The rule of law in the church among the body of believers isn't every man for himself, but is rather peace of Christ for all. Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We should be laying down our preferences, laying down our personal desires for the sake of peace with our brothers and sisters. Again, it's not natural. The natural man says, I want my way and I want it now. This peace is gonna accompany the compassion, the kindness, the humility. It's gonna be driven by love. If you don't have love for your brother, you will never have true peace with him. Paul says here that we are called to peace in one body. God has brought peace between each of us because of the cross and we should be thankful for it. So when we deal with each other, when we talk to each other, when we make decisions in the church, we can't try to build up walls that Jesus has broken down. I pray that every conversation we have at Newbridge, every decision, every discussion we make here is fragranced with the aroma of peace. So because we belong to Christ, put on the character of Christ, we'll put on love, we'll let peace rule. In verse 16, we will let the word of Christ dwell in us. In verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Each of us has a responsibility individually. On your own, you have a responsibility, but also as a community, as a body of believers, to be immersed in the word regularly. There's an individual responsibility and then a responsibility for all of us together to be in the word regularly. And this is more than just the occasional verse that you read off of those Christian Instagram pages. This is, this is reading, this is listening, this is letting scripture soak into your soul, letting it dwell, letting it make a home in you. Robbie Gallaty, who is the author and senior pastor at Long Hollow Baptist Church in Tennessee, uh, he has a catchphrase that he likes to say. 
Some of the teens heard it this summer because his student pastor was at a camp that we went to. But he says, get in the word until the word gets in you. Everything that we do as a church should find its basis in and point back to what we know about God from scripture. That's where it should be rooted. Our small groups, our Sunday school classes, the worship service, even the outreach that we do, everything should all be centered either implicitly or explicitly on the word of God, pointing people to what the Bible tells us about God. Why? Because the word is the only instrument promised by God in his word to grow faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. Same phrasing. So are are you in the word? And if you're in the word, do you let the word get into you? Do you allow it to seep down into your soul, showing you your weaknesses, showing you your limitations as uncomfortable as that can be, but all the while pointing you to the savior that can make you whole? Do you let the word soak in your heart? And Paul gives us an idea of how to do this. He, it, it's sort of a progression that he gives here. He says, um, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. We'll we'll pause there for a second because this is a progression. This is what Paul is doing with his letter, right? He's writing to the Colossians. He's writing to the church in Colossae, and he's writing to teach, to correct some of the false ideas that are being taught in Colossae, some things that don't line up with God's word. And so he writes these things to do what he tells them to do here to teach and admonish using the scriptures. We at Newbridge, we are committed to solid Bible teaching. We are committed to expository preaching at Newbridge. We try as best as we can to structure the sermon in a way that follows closely the structure of the text because I can guarantee you the Lord has much better things to say than we do. So we have sermons, we have small groups, we have classes. All of these are opportunities for teaching and for admonishing. But Paul says that one of the ways that we do teaching and admonishing is in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing together. My daughter is about two and a half years old. She loves music. My mom stayed the night with us last night. We had a dance party in Parker's room for quite a while. We were all exhausted, except for Parker. She knows her... uh, Parker, not my mom. Parker knows her alphabet. She knows numbers. She knows what an itsy-bitsy spider does. She knows that Disney's Moana has been staring at the water for as long as she can remember. And she knows that Jesus loves her. How? Because of music. Song taught her all of these things. God has designed music in such a way that it helps us remember things. Why do I know J.G. Wentworth's phone number by heart? 877-CASH-NOW. Why do I know that? Because they've had so many commercials pounding that incessant music into my ears. Right? How do I know that every kiss supposedly begins with K? Because they have a catchy little jingle. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. How do you know that? Because of music. That's how powerful music is. That's how the Lord has designed music. Music helps us learn things. It is incredibly powerful. And if it helps us remember the catchphrase or candy bars and jewelry, how much more should it help us remember eternal truths about an eternal God? What we sing matters. What you listen to matters. Just because a song is on K-Love or P-E-R doesn't mean it's true. Because here's the thing. Just as a song can teach us truths about God, so it can also spread lies. Arius 
one of the early church heretics. He's a noted heretic who preached that Jesus Christ was created, that he was not truly God. And his teaching spread far and wide in that area at that time. Why? Because he composed easy-to-remember songs to be sung by sailors, by workers, by travelers. Essentially, he, he created jingles. And that's how people could remember his teachings. That's how people knew what he was teaching. See, if we're not careful, we can blindly follow a musical group or a singer down a path without noticing, only eventually to look up and realize we have strayed off the path of truth and orthodoxy. The words that we sing matter greatly. So we need to take great care with what we sing. Line it up with God's word to ensure that it's truthful. We can't, can't, can't underestimate the power of music in shaping and teaching our own hearts, let alone the hearts of our children. Teens, I know the music some of you listen to. It is shaping your heart, whether you realize it or not, because that's what music does. That's the way the Lord has designed it. And he's designed it to be used for good, but our sinful nature takes it and we use it for bad so often. So we need to fill our minds. We need to let the word dwell in us by singing together, by singing truths together. Final thing, because we belong to Christ, we will live in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever we say, whatever we do, we should do for the glory of God and giving thanks to God. It matters what you say and what you do. See, we have a tendency in our lives, and this isn't a new problem at all, but we have a tendency in our lives to sort of divide up, well, this is God's time and this is my time. Right? Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings, the occasional Bible study, that's, that's God's time. But everything else is sort of my time to do with as I please. And, and God better not step into that time. And so we try to divide our lives like that a lot of times, but there is no such division for the Christian. If we truly belong to Christ, if we truly are elect, if we're chosen, holy, and beloved, there is no division for the Christian life. I changed my first diaper on September 19th, 2017, okay? Um, does anybody actually like changing diapers? I feel like that's sort of the go-to thing if you're trying to pick something that people don't like doing. Um, okay, I, ch- I changed my first diaper September 19th, 2017. Here's the thing. Paul says in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Does that mean then that I'm supposed to, to change a diaper in the name of the Lord Jesus. That might frame diaper changes a little bit differently if you begin it, Parker, lay down. In the name of the Lord Jesus, and then you start changing the diaper. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. You know, Paul is talking about the heart set that we're, we're supposed to have. He says, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. Even something as mundane, something as menial as washing diapers, changing diapers, can be done for the Lord. And the reformer, Martin Luther, recognized this. In 1522, he wrote, Now you tell me, when a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other mean task for his child, and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, though that father is acting in the spirit just described and in Christian faith, my dear fellow, you tell me, which of the two is most keenly ridiculing the other? God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. While we're at church, while we're at work, 
while we're driving the car, while we're at home, we're supposed to do all for the Lord. A.W. Tozer explains, it's not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It's why he does it. But again, that, that's not possible for us to do naturally. It's not natural for me to see everything as an opportunity to serve the Lord. That's why we look at it in context. If we go back to that initial list, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love. This isn't a checklist to be completed. It's a character to be cultivated. We put on the character of Christ. We put on the new man. And as we grow in compassion, as we grow in kindness, grow in humility, we'll honor the Lord more in everything that we do because our hearts will be right. But in all of this, we need to be careful not to reverse the order. There are expectations of us because we're in God's family. Our adoption into the family was a free gift of grace. He made dead things alive, but recognizing that we already are chosen, holy, and loved, now we should imitate Christ, put on love, let peace rule among us, let the word of Christ dwell in us, and do all that we do, whether in word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we believe about Jesus Christ matters. It's the name of the series. It matters so much so that it should impact every single corner of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your grace. And you give some hard commands to let peace rule That means not insisting on our own way, which is so unnatural for us. So our prayer this morning is that you would help us to understand your character, the character of your son, and help us to imitate it. Lord, give us the wisdom not to reach into our own hearts and pull out patience and kindness and humility, 